we are in part 91 of a series called Being Jesus, where what we've done is we've taken uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four gospels, the accounts of Jesus' life in scripture, and combined them into one account. And we've been uh, studying that together for the last couple of years. This is part 91 of 100. So uh, if you know the story, you know that once we get up into the, the 90s, then you sort of know the sort of things we're going to start to talk about. So that means that, yes, just two days after celebrating Christmas, we are going to start talking about the events leading up to Jesus's death. And I know that is very weird, but we're just going to go with it. But but before we get to our scriptures, I have a quick story for you. So uh, I've got two boys, Matthew, who's four, and Joey, who's two and a half. Absolutely love those kids, love being a dad. And, and they love coming to Bridgeway, which is very important to me. They love being here. They like to kind of run around. They love saying hi to different people who are here. Uh, both of my boys, especially my oldest, love music. They're just, they were here for this service and they love to come in and, and, and watch the band. And, and even my oldest is starting to learn some of the songs. So we let him come in for the music before he goes to his kids' way classrooms. They love their kids' way classrooms. They just love being around Bridgeway. But one of their favorite things to do here at Bridgeway is, is come to my office. And, and the reason they love coming to my office is because that is where they find Jesus. <laughs> this is my Jesus action figure. It was, it was given to me several years ago as a gag gift, but jokes on the person who gave it to me, I think it's awesome. Look at him. He even, he glides. He has wheels. I mean, how can you not love this thing? Uh, by the way, my wife thinks this is totally heretical, but uh, that's only because she's more mature than I am. Uh, but, but listen to this, and this is true. I had a friend come up to me after the, the late service last night and tell me that while I was talking about my Jesus action figure, somebody next to them was on their phone Googling, I don't know, Jesus action figure, and they found that these things are going for like 25 bucks on eBay, so, which is crazy to me. But I know what I'm doing with this after today. But anyway, um, <laughs> I, I, I keep this Jesus action figure in my, in my office on a, on a bookshelf. Uh, so, so a lot of times my boys, when they enter sort of the general office area, will say things like, uh, Daddy, can we go see Jesus? Or, or Daddy, can I go play with Jesus? <laughs> or, or sometimes once they enter my actual space, they'll say things like, Hi, Jesus! Or... Or my favorite uh, Jesus-related quote from one of my children comes from uh, Joey, my two-and-a-half-year-old, who, who once we were leaving my office and we were going to go check him into his kids' way classroom, and he says, bye-bye, Jesus, see you later, alligator. <laughs> and what do you do? I could only laugh and, and wonder, what have I done? But this, this of course, is not uh, the real Jesus. This is, a, this is a child's toy. It was made in a factory and sold in a store, and now is made its way into my office. And as I continue to talk about him, I'm going to set him right here so he can watch all of you. Uh, but he's, he's, just a, he's just a child's toy. And I, and I keep him around, keep it around, mostly because I think it's funny. And because I think it's sort of a sign to anyone who walks into my office that I don't take myself too seriously. Because, come on, if you have a Jesus action figure, how can you take yourself too seriously? But there is also a deeper reason why I keep it around. Because to me, it is both a symbol and a reminder. It's a symbol to me, every time I look at it, that deep in my heart, 
There exists a desire to create my own Jesus. A Jesus who is safe. A Jesus who is frankly just like me. A Jesus who validates all of my ways of thinking. A a Jesus who does not like my enemies and validates what I think. A Jesus who wants to serve me but doesn't ask me to serve him. A Jesus who makes me feel good but doesn't love me enough to ask me to change. And it's a reminder to me That that desire, again, it doesn't just exist out there. It doesn't just exist in others. Because, you know, we all think, you know, everyone else has a bunch of problems, but I've really got it together. No, that's not true. It's a reminder to me that that desire exists in my heart, as I just said. And I need to be careful to not give in to that desire. Because the truth is, I am naturally drawn to people and institutions that reinforce my own ways of thinking and don't challenge me to change the way I think. And the absolute same thing is true of you. And if I'm not careful, I might try to form Jesus into my own image. I can make my own action figure Jesus who is built entirely on my own expectations and assumptions, who reinforces what I already believe. And if I'm following that Jesus, I'm certainly not following the Jesus of Scripture. Just yesterday afternoon, I was using my time wisely by scrolling through my Twitter feed, and I found a quote from a famous pastor. No, I was not looking for a quote for the sermon, just so you know. But I found this great quote from a famous pastor that really speaks to this issue. He said, this. He said, either we trust God by affirming all his revealed wisdom, or we play God by deciding what he got wrong. Either we trust God by affirming his revealed wisdom, or we play God by deciding what he got wrong. And the temptation to believe that God, you know, God got some things wrong, and I'm just going to, you know, he didn't really mean that, and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to fix that. Or the temptation to create a Jesus who is just like us. The temptation to then worship that Jesus. That's a temptation that exists in every single one of us. And in our passages today, we're going to look at two of the trials that took place close to the end of Jesus' life. When Jesus was on trial before both Roman officials and religious officials. And these scenes are absolutely full of people who had expectations and assumptions of what Jesus should be like, of what the Messiah should be like. And because Jesus failed to meet those expectations, they turned on him. They're full of people who wanted Jesus to serve them in different ways. So as we walk through the story, this is what I want to do, is I want to take just a few spots in the story, especially towards the beginning, where I want to pull us into the 21st century and just ask some questions. And I want to look at the attitudes present in the different characters in the story and just ask some questions designed to help us honestly assess Are some of the attitudes present in the people in this story present in our own hearts 
as well. We might not be the ones trying to condemn Jesus, but let's not be so foolish as to think that some of those same attitudes aren't present in us as well. And if they are present, what can we do about them? That's what I want to do today. And and ultimately, I hope to show you what the the fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you, and it's this, is that we all want Jesus to serve us. Let's just be real honest about that. That's kind of a hard truth, but, but, but don't let its, its hardness distract you from its truth. We all want Jesus to serve us, but joy is found in serving Him. We all want Jesus to serve us, but joy is found in serving Him. Or here, Here's another way to think about that. We all want to form Jesus into our image, but joy is found in being transformed into His. The the, the way of serving Jesus is the way of lasting joy. So when we settle for less than that, when we settle for a Jesus that looks just like us, we lose, you lose, I lose. And it's not because, oh, well, God's going to be mad at you or God's going to be disappointed with you. It's not because, oh, well, that means you're, you're a bad person. It's certainly not, you know, not because, oh, well, now you need to go feel guilty. No, if we're not following the real Jesus, we lose because the way of Jesus is the way of joy. And we lose out on joy. So we're going to dive in. Our our scripture comes from, there's parts from all four different gospels. The the references are on uh, your bulletin and and the the scripture is going to be on the screen to my right and to my left. So we're just going to read this all the way through and then we'll come back and and look at it in some detail. So, So here we go. Then the whole company of them led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters and brought Jesus before Pilate. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forgiving us, forbidding us excuse me, to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer. Not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Then Pilate said to the chief priests in the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching all throughout Judea, from Galilee, even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at the time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. 
the chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. This is God's word. So let's go back to the beginning. It says, So the whole company of them led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters and brought Jesus before Pilate. Here's what's gone on. Jesus has been arrested and he's been taken to stand trial before some religious leaders in the house of Caiaphas. And this trial ends with a very dramatic scene found in the last couple of verses of Luke chapter 22, where it says, So they, all of the religious leaders who were trying him, said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. So so they decide that they've heard enough from Jesus to condemn him. And, And they go off to find Pilate. But of course, this was, this was nothing like a fair trial. The outcome of this trial had been determined by the religious leaders before it had even begun. Uh, they had already determined that he was a blasphemer and a false teacher because he did not endorse their corrupt way of doing things. So they were listening to Jesus, but they were intent on condemning him. So they were listening to him with an agenda. Anything that contradicted their viewpoint and their agenda was to be ignored. So here's a question for you. First question I want to pose. What do you do when the teachings of Jesus don't match your assumptions or biases? What do you do when the teachings of Jesus don't match your assumptions or biases? What do you do when your natural way of thinking is challenged by what you read in the scriptures? Uh, Do you come to Jesus looking for him to simply rubber stamp your way of doing things, rubber stamp your view of the world? Or do you come to him humbly asking him to transform you so that you see the world as he does? There's a simple question that I like to keep in my mind and just, just come back to on a pretty regular basis. And I'd encourage you to maybe hang on to it as well. And and, and I would also encourage you, don't be fooled by its simplicity because it's an incredibly simple question. But this question I just like to ask myself is, how am I different because I follow Jesus? And and I don't mean, how am I different from non-believers around me? I mean, how am I different from non-Christian me? How has my thinking been changed because I follow Jesus. How, how does the way that I, how is, how is the way that I handle my money been changed because, of I fo- because I follow Jesus? How is the way that I spend my time changed because I follow Jesus? How does the way that I enjoy my hobbies, how is the way that I watch sports different because I follow Jesus? And I'll tell you, it's different. How, how, is, the, how is my marriage or how is my life as a single person different because I follow Jesus? How is the way that I interact with, speak of, and otherwise represent people who disagree with me different because I follow Jesus? How is my approach to my work or my studies different? Or or how are my thoughts and actions maybe a little bit unnatural to me because I follow Jesus? 
Because if we're not different, here's what that means. It means we're probably not following the real Jesus at all. We've made ourselves a Jesus action figure. And listen, if you're looking for Jesus to rubber stamp your way of thinking, regardless of what your way of thinking is, there's a false Jesus for you and for me. So if we're not any different, we've created our own Jesus. We've created a Jesus who looks like us. Instead of being formed into his image, we've allowed, we've, instead of being formed into his image, we have formed him into ours. See, the religious leaders, they came to Jesus with an agenda. They, they, they came to Jesus with expectations. They knew what they wanted from him and they were going to get it regardless of what he said. I just want to ask you, do you come to Jesus with an agenda? Are you looking for him to agree with you or are you looking for him to transform you so that you agree with him? Are you looking for him to serve you or do you earnestly desire to serve him? And, and I, I said this before and I'll, I'll say it again just because it's, it's so important. It's, this is challenging stuff we're talking through. When we settle on action figure Jesus, we lose because we lose out on joy. The way of Jesus is not easy, but it is the way of joy. I mean, we just finished celebrating Christmas, and what did the angels say when they announced the birth of Jesus to the shepherds? They said, uh, I bring you good news of great joy for all people. Do you understand? The way of Jesus is good news. The invitation to follow Jesus is, is great joy. The way of Jesus is good news of great joy. Joy for all people. So, so understand, when, when I'm up here, or, or one of our other pastors or teachers are up here, and we're pleading for you to follow Jesus more closely, just as I, I plead with my own silly heart that likes, just, just gets distracted by all sorts of other things. I live in the real world just like you do. When I'm, when I'm pleading with you, like I plead with myself to follow Jesus more closely, understand I'm not pleading for you to be more devoted to some dry or dusty religion. I'm not pleading for you to conform your life to some moral code. I'm not pleading for you to feel guilty about ways that you fall short. I am pleading for for your joy. I'm pleading for your joy. Because the way of Jesus is the way of joy. So how am I different? Because I follow Jesus. It's a question very much worth keeping in front of us. So the religious officials determined that Jesus' crime was blasphemy, a, pro a crime that in their eyes was punishable by death. But the only problem with that, from their perspective, is at the time, the Jews were ruled over by the Romans. So in order for a capital punishment to take place, the Romans had to authorize it. And almost always, not always, but almost always, the Romans were the ones to carry it out. So they grab Jesus and they march him over to the headquarters of Pilate, uh, who was the Roman governor of their area. Now, normally Pilate lived in Caesarea, which would have been a, a significant distance away. But because it was the Passover time, Pilate and a bunch of other Roman officials and, and soldiers had moved in to Jerusalem because they wanted to keep an eye on all of the people that had come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And, and that makes a lot of sense from a Roman perspective. In fact, I think it's sort of funny because uh, the Romans at the time were a foreign power oppressing the Jews. And the whole point of the Passover is for Jews to remember a time when their God rescued them from a foreign power who was oppressing them. So I can imagine sort of the Romans talking about it. What's this? These people we're oppressing want to celebrate their God rescuing them from a foreign power? Uh, no problem with that. Nothing could possibly go wrong, right? 
So, so there's a, a heightened presence in the city. So Pilate's there. So they take him to Pilate. And it says it was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. What? Hold on. Can, can we take a minute and talk about how crazy that is? Here, here's what's going on. Jewish oral tradition said that anybody who entered the home of a Gentile or a non-Jew became ceremonially unclean for a week. And when you're ceremonially unclean, you can't participate in any festivals. And Passover is a big deal. It's a big festival. So they wanted to be able to, to participate in the festival. So the religious leaders say, we don't want to be unclean. Because the last thing you want to have happen when you're trying to execute the Son of God is become ceremonially unclean. Because that would really bum God out. Right? That would be a really bad thing. I mean, don't get me wrong. Ceremonial purity was a big deal for the Jews, especially during Passover. But come on. I mean, that's just nuts, isn't it? It's like meeting a murderer who gets a guilty conscience from jaywalking. It's like... So talk me through that. That doesn't really make a lot of sense. But, but again, lest we think that that sort of attitude is just out there and not in our own hearts. One, one commentary I read this week said this, and I, I just thought this was profound. It said, and I quote, One of the most tragic things in the world is how the human mind can lose its sense of proportion and its ability to put first things first. We, not, we might not be fussing over ceremonial purity while we're trying to get the Son of God killed. But it's true. One of the most tragic things that can happen in your heart and mine is we lose our sense of proportion. In other words, we make small things big and we make big things small. And it absolutely devastates us. I just wonder if you've ever done that. I'll, I'll give you some examples. Don't, don't, don't raise your hand. But how many of us, how many of us have gotten into an argument with somebody that was close to us, that was very significant in our lives, and the argument was so severe that that relationship has gone south? And it continues to remain a broken relationship because we don't want to be the first ones to apologize. See, that's taking a small thing, our pride and making it big and taking a big thing a relationship with another person and making it small or or how many of us have let our marriages get jacked up because we're just a little bit too interested in some diversion or hobby so we just can't find the time to invest now, let's be honest it's a live issue in my life i don't want to be making my my hobbies so big that they're taking away from what's important how many of us have let that happen or how many of us have done something we would give anything to take back because we felt disrespected in the moment we elevated our need for respect a very small thing and made it big and and, and messed up our lives in the process i just quick tangent I, I because i have been in conversations in the last month here on campus in counseling rooms in family rooms and even in a jail cell with people who have jacked up their lives some in very small ways some in very significant ways hence the jail cell and their stories go something like this 
they disrespected me, so I fill in the blank. And now they're in trouble. How desperately, listen, listen, how desperately we need to learn to be able to say, they disrespected me, but then I remembered my identity is secure in Jesus, so I have no need to lash out or fight back. Man, you can't let that small thing, your pride, your need for respect, become big. Or how many of us have invested countless hours in becoming theologically learned, but we aren't interested in loving our neighbors or loving our enemies as if understanding the details excuses us from practicing the basics? Or parents, how many of us have spent so much time at the office chasing the so-called American dream that we haven't invested in shepherding the hearts of our children. And I could sit here all day with examples, but I hope you get the point. We constantly, you do, I do, we all do, we run the risk of losing our sense of proportion. So we make small things big. We react in the moment without thinking about what we want our long term to look like. We sacrifice things that matter a lot for things that matter very little. See, the people in the story, they were so fixated on their agenda that they missed the very presence of God in their midst. They were so whacked out by their agenda that they valued ritual cleanliness over the life of an innocent man, the innocent son of God, no less. And again, we might not take things to that Level, but let's not be so naive as to suggest those same attitudes don't exist within us. It goes on. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. Pilate is saying, essentially, guys, this sounds like a religious dispute, not a state matter. So go ahead and just settle it by your own rules. It would be sort of like if you were to go uh, to the police or perhaps the local or state government and say, um, we have a, a scrawny, awkward associate pastor named Brian, and he is telling people that he is the son of God and that we should follow him. I'm not, by the way, but just, just be very clear about that. But just by way of example, if you were to go tell them that, they would probably say something to you like, well... I mean, that sounds like a spiritual concern or a religious matter. We're, we're the state. That's not really our, our deal. So go, to, go take it up with your pastors or, or whoever else. That's not really our problem. That's essentially what's going on here. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. In other words, we want this man killed and we need your help with that. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. This is significant for two reasons. The second, much more important than the first. But first, when Jews put people to death, it was typically by stoning, which breaks a lot of bones, or so I've been told. When the Romans put someone to death, it was by crucifixion, which didn't break any bones. Psalm 34 and some other places prophesy that when the Messiah is killed, not a bone of his will be broken. And John's gospel alludes to this prophecy in his account of Jesus' death. And Jesus is meant to be the perfect Passover lamb. There's meant to be great connection between the original Passover story in Exodus and the death of Jesus. 
And as God is describing to Israel how to practice the Passover, he says, find a spotless lamb and do not break any of its bones. It's a significant prophecy. And then second, Jesus had said several times during his ministry that at the end of his life, he would be, quote, lifted up, which meant hung on a cross. And Deuteronomy chapter 21 says that a man who hangs on the tree or hangs on the cross is cursed by God. In other words, hanging on the cross is a sign of sin being judged. It's a sign of sin being judged. Do you understand that there is a curse associated with your sin and mine? That there is righteous and just judgment from God that you and I deserve because of our sinfulness. And do you understand that there is nothing we can do in our power to free ourselves from being worthy of that judgment. There's nothing that we can do. But it's in reflecting on the death of Jesus on the cross a couple decades after Jesus died that the Apostle Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. When Jesus hung on the cross, he didn't just die. He experienced the curse of God that you and I deserve. He freed us from the curse we deserve by becoming a curse for us. Because Jesus was cursed by God, there is grace for us. Because Jesus was condemned, there is salvation for us. Because Jesus died, we can live. Jesus had to die on the cross because it represented him being cursed by God for our salvation. If you feel that that you deserve to be punished or you deserve to be cursed by God because of the bad things you have done, the bad news is you are absolutely right. But the good news is that punishment has already taken place when Jesus hung on the cross. That punishment has already taken place. And they began to accuse him, saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying he himself is Christ, a king. See, the religious leaders, they knew, okay, Pilate's not going to respond to our, our spiritual concerns, our religious concerns, so, so we, need to, we need to come up with some, some charges against Jesus that are going to get his attention. Like in the example I gave earlier, where I talked about, you know, if you go to the, the government and say, well, he's, he's saying these silly things about being the son of God, then they might not care. But if you were to go to the government and say, okay, we've got this scrawny associate pastor who's awkward named Brian, and he's talking about trying to overthrow uh, the government, which I'm not, USA all the way, um, it, it, you know, he's trying, he's talking about all these crazy ideas and he's got a plan and everything. That would probably get some attention and I would probably have some uninvited guests at my house, right? Uh, that's the sort of thing that's going on here because that's a direct threat and they're trying to show Pilate, listen, P- Jesus is a direct threat against your interests. So the religious leaders make up these charges designed to get his attention. They say, number one, Jesus is misleading the nation. Not, not only is he teaching sort of radical religious ideas, but he's, he's doing so in such a way that he's creating some social unrest. Things are about to get crazy if you let this continue. And, and then he says, he's forbidding us. Oh, 
One more thing. By the way, that first charge, the irony of that, is that there were many religious leaders who wanted Jesus to become uh, more politically and militarily involved, who wanted him to become more of a, more of a force of social unrest than he was. So that is a, that is a false first charge. Second, they said that he's forbidding us from, from paying tribute to Caesar. In other words, he's telling us not to pay taxes. And this is a completely false charge because, in fact, in Luke chapter 20, some religious officials come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, uh, is it lawful for us to pay tribute to Caesar. And I love Jesus' answer. It was so brilliant, and it's helpful for us even today. He says, get me a coin. And they get him a coin. Whose picture's on the coin? They said, it's Caesar. Okay, so render to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. In other words, whose image is on the coin? Caesar. So give it to him. It belongs to him. Whose image is on you? God's. You belong to him. So pay your taxes, be a good citizen, but remember, you have God's image on you. And then they say that he is a Christ, he is a king. And that sort of charge, and, and the previous one, are meant to try to convince Pilate that Jesus is some sort of threat to the sovereignty and security of Rome. They're saying, hey, listen, he's telling us not to pay our taxes, he's claiming to be a king, that means he's in opposition to Caesar. This guy's a real troublemaker. If you're any sort of governor, you need to do something about him. But of course, as we'll see in the passage that Lance will talk about next week, it's true that Jesus is a king, but not in the earthly sense. He's going to say, my kingdom is not of this world. But Pilate asks him, are you king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. And this is an answer rich with innuendo. Jesus said, yeah, yeah, I'm a king. But he's saying to Pilate, you and I both know I'm not the sort of king you're thinking of. I'm not the sort of king the world Knows my kingdom is one where the is one where the last are first. My kingdom is one is where the poor are cared for. My kingdom is one where the orphan and widow find family. My kingdom is one where there is lasting peace even in the face of violence and hardship. My kingdom is one where friends and enemies are loved and where radical grace rules the day. Tell me, Pilate, is that like Rome? No, it's not. He says, "Yes, I'm a king, but I'm not your kind of king." And the chief priest accused him of many things. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, that the governor was greatly amazed. The prophet Isaiah, writing hundreds of years before Jesus was born, prophesied about Jesus in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7, saying he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. See, Jesus knew there there was nothing more to say. There was nothing more he could say. Any hope of reconciliation with the religious leaders, that ship had sailed. Pilate was not sympathetic to him. He wasn't on his team. There's really nothing he could say to Pilate. And then beyond that, he, he knew what he was there to do. Jesus had glorified the Father through his life, through his ministry, through his teaching, through his miracles. And now it was time for him to glorify the Father through his death. Then Pilate said to the chief priests in the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee, even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether this man was a Galilean. And he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction. He sent him over to Herod, who was himself at Jerusalem at the time. 
So the religious leaders say, hey, Pilate, here's one more thing for you. Jesus is from Galilee. And the reason he told them, they told him that is because Galilee was known as sort of this hotbed of anti-Roman sentiment and conversation. Listen, he comes from where the bad guys are, Pilate. But Pilate latches onto it for a different reason. See, there was this Jewish ruler named Herod, who he was still controlled by the Romans, but he was in authority over an area that included Galilee. So Pilate thought, okay, well, I don't really know what to do with Jesus. On the one hand, he seems innocent to me. On the other hand, I've got all these you know, people in my hair demanding that I have him executed. I don't know what to do. I know I'm going to go ahead and pass the buck to, to my old buddy Herod, who I don't even like, by the way. But I'm going to send Jesus to Herod. Let him deal with this. And then it also serves Pilate's interest because whatever Herod said, says, that sort of gives Pilate a little bit more justification for his ultimate decisions if Herod agrees with it. So Jesus goes to see Herod. But when Herod saw Jesus, Luke says, he was very glad for he desired to see him because he had heard about him. He was hoping to see some sign done by him. Herod, to be absolutely clear, was no friend of Jesus. In fact, in Luke chapter 13, Jesus' disciples come to him and say, hey, Jesus, we gots to go. Herod wants to kill you. But here in Luke 23, at least for a moment, Herod strikes a little bit of a different tone with Jesus. He's excited to see him because he wants to see Jesus do a trick. He's heard about Jesus and the miracles he's performing, and now he's got a front row seat to the show. He wants miracle worker Jesus, the miracle worker Jesus, who comes out, does a magic trick, and then goes away. He says, Jesus, I hear you have wheels so you can roll. Let's see that. That's pretty cool, right? He wants miracle worker Jesus, who comes out, does a trick, and then goes away. He, he of course, has no interest in serving Jesus, no interest in learning from Jesus, no interest in following Jesus. He just, want, he just wants the show. And I wonder, another question, if we're honest, how many of us are more interested in having Jesus do a trick for us than having Jesus transform us? How many of us, if we're honest, want Jesus to change the things around us or change our circumstances, which it is a right and good thing to pray for Jesus to do that, to intervene in in the affairs of our lives. But how many of us, we want him to change the things around us, but we don't want him to change us? Or how many of us, if we're honest, come to Jesus simply desiring some sort of emotional experience, but don't want true transformation. I'm not against emotional experience. I hope you're, you're moved emotionally as you, as you worship and study the scriptures. But how many of us, but if that's all it is, it's just, it's nothing, right? How many of us just want the experience but don't want to be changed? See, see Jesus isn't a magician. He does amazing things, but he's not a magician. He's not our performer. He's not our entertainer. He's our savior who comes to take away our sin. And he's our Lord and our master who loves us enough to show us a new way to live. See, the Christian life is one where we're actively seeking to grow in the character and competency of Jesus, all under the banner of God's grace, 
all under the banner of God's grace where it is safe to fail. It is safe to make mistakes. It's, it's a life of, of seeking to be less like ourselves and more like him. Not because we're trying to earn his approval or feel less guilty or feel superior to others, but because we've seen him and we love him and we know that in following him we find life. There was a famous Greek philosopher who lived in the first century named Epictetus, and, and just to be be clear, I don't typically read first century Greek philosophy. I just read this in a book and thought it was good, a, a 21st century book. Uh, but, he, but he said this, that, that Epictetus, he was known to complain that people would come from all over the world to his lectures to stare at him as if he were a wonderful work of art. It's kind of, I don't know why they did that. I don't, maybe he was very good looking. But they would come to stare at him like a, like a work of art. But they did not come to accept and obey his teaching. And I wonder how many of us do that with Jesus. We treat him as someone to be looked at, perhaps someone to be vaguely admired, but not a master and a king to obey. Herod, again, had no interest in learning from Jesus, no interest in following Jesus. He just wanted a trick. He wanted the show. He wanted to be wowed. Will God do things in his grace that will wow you? Yeah, absolutely, he will. But please don't fall into the trap of only wanting to be wowed. Your joy depends on it. Jesus didn't come to wow you. He came to transform you, and he came to transform me. And we, all, we want him to wow us. We want him to serve us. But joy is found in serving him. So Jesus is in front of Herod. He que- Herod questions him at some length, but Jesus made no answer. The last thing Jesus was going to do is participate and play Herod's game. So he's silent. And th- there, is a, there is a rebuke given in that silence that was more powerful than anything Jesus could have said. Th- there are times when silence is deafening, aren't there? And this, no doubt, made Herod very uncomfortable. So he, he gets very angry and he lashes out and says, The chief priests and scribes stood by him, vehemently accusing him. And Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. Je- Jesus didn't live up to Herod's expectations. Jesus didn't do what Herod wanted him to do. So Herod turned on the Son of God and held him in contempt and began to mock him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. The the mockery concludes with dressing Jesus up in these mock royal garments and sending him back to Pilate. The sort of the unspoken message is, Pilate, I'll endorse whatever you do. I don't don't respect this man. I I don't honor him. He's worthy of whatever punishment you want to give him. And of course, if you know the story, we know that Pilate will ultimately be swayed by the crowds and he'll have Jesus crucified. And the story ends with this sort of weird line. It says, Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. And for a variety of reasons related to sort of the religious, political, socio, whatever, situation at the time, that we don't need to get into the details, because of the sort of environment they were in, religiously and politically, Herod and, and Pilate did not get along particularly well. But as they both sort of turn on Jesus together, that brings them together. And I don't know that any reconciliation in the history of the world has been more sad than that one. It's two men, face to face with Jesus, face to face with the Son of God, 
unwilling to let go of their expectations and assumptions, unwilling to let go of their pride, and willing to condemn Jesus because he wasn't who they desired him to be. They wanted a Jesus who served them, so they missed the joy of serving him. And again, we're not Herod, we're not Pilate, we're not condemning Jesus to death, but isn't it true that we can be kept from fully following him because we want to make him into our image instead of allowing him to make us into his? But even though that's true of us, that there is good news for us, and I'll close with this. The good news is that there is grace for us. Not only does the saving grace of God take away our sin, the transforming grace of God works in our hearts to change us so that we desire to follow Jesus instead of making him like us. The scriptures tell us that when Jesus came, he was full of grace and full of truth. See, grace without truth is mere sentimentality. It's, it's warm fuzzies. It's, it's happy thoughts. It makes us feel good for a moment. But it lacks the power to truly change us because it leaves us in denial about our flaws. Truth without grace is harshness. It, it gives us information, but it's not given to us in a way that we can receive it. If any of us have ever had someone tell us something that we know is true, but they're just so dang mean about it that we can't process it in a healthy way. But the grace and truth of Jesus helps us to see that God is radically committed to us and our joy. Do you you believe that? God is radically committed to you and your joy. And from that place of radical commitment, from that place of radical acceptance because of what Jesus has done on the cross, he invites us into the process of being changed into his image for his glory and our joy. See, we don't abandon action figure Jesus by trying harder to do better. We don't abandon action figure Jesus by saying, okay, it's going to be different this time. We abandon action figure Jesus by embracing the transforming grace of God that will change our hearts and point us towards joy because God calls us to a faith where we're not asking Jesus to serve us, but instead we're giving our lives to serving him. And listen to me, that is a gracious and good gift because come on, we all want Jesus to serve us. But joy, joy, joy is found in serving him. Let me pray for you. God, thank you for this time together. Thank you for my brothers and sisters that we even have this place. We can gather and sing songs to you and and sit under your word. Thank you that you are full of grace and truth. So I pray for myself and and for everyone here today that we would have the courage to ask the question, how am I different because I've followed Jesus? And we would have the courage to, to perhaps look in our own hearts and see ways that we're just trying to project ourselves onto Jesus instead of having Jesus transform us. I pray that you would help us to remember that, that, that following Jesus is the pursuit of joy. That as we follow you, there is joy in that journey. It's not always easy. It's not even always happy, but it is always joyful and there is joy there. And I pray that that pursuit of joy would motivate us. I pray our our love for you 
would motivate us. And, and more than that, God, I pray that your transforming grace would be at work in our hearts so that we might be less concerned about making you look like us and more concerned with looking like you for your glory and our joy. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a great rest of the weekend.